The framework of business is completely different in the new normal. To explore culture as the strategy, we have to look in places we haven't before. Looking into company culture from the C-suite to employees and from Fortune 500 to startups. It's time to understand the human side of company culture and the new shape it is taking. This is the conversation on Culture Factor 2.0, and I'm your host, Holly Shannon. I'm really excited to share this with my Culture Factor 2.0 community. I've published Zero to Podcast. It was a book that I built to start my podcast, and I created it for myself just so that I could make other podcasts down the road. And then I realized that it's not just for me, it's for anyone looking to try podcasting for personal or professional reasons. So I'm also really excited to tell you that it already hit the top 10 in three best-selling categories on Amazon and number one in hot new releases in two categories. And even more exciting, the University of Chicago now carries it in their bookstore. So go buy your copy and get started. Zero to Podcast will be in the show note. I'll leave a link there. Or you could go to hollyshannon.com and you could buy the book and get any help you need building it for you or your company. Now on to our show. Lori Rudiman is a CNN Top 5 Career Advisor and host of the Top 100 Management Podcast, Punk Rock HR. I love that name. She is the author of the new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. Lori is an executive and HR consultant for Fortune 500 companies, and her book, Betting on You, is a 21st century employee handbook. It teaches you how to prioritize your well-being, take thoughtful risks with your career, and build community. It does this all while becoming a person who is always learning and being challenged. Booklist called it irreverent, funny, and direct, and it received praise from Jesse Itzler, Susie Welch, and Daniel Pink. So Lori is here on Culture Factor to show you how to be your own agent of change in this process. So welcome, Lori. How are you today? It's my pleasure to be here. I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I'm going to dive right in because I think we all could use um, your your vantage point on this. So in your one of your chapters, you say, be a slacker, work less to accomplish more. So you kind of had me at hello with that chapter. And I would I think a lot of other people are going to be like, yes, how do I be a slacker and work less and accomplish more? So can you help us with that? Sure. You know, I wrote this book before COVID, but was lucky enough to have a little bit of an opportunity to go back and revise it during, you know, the early days of the pandemic. But it turns out that I didn't need to revise much because a lot of what I was writing about when the economy was good and people were fully employed was just kind of a perspective that I had about the world of work from a woman who had a chip on her shoulder, a Gen Xer who's a natural slacker. But now that we've been living in a world for the past year where systems have failed us, we've seen more and more the impact of burnout, exhaustion, racism, sexism, homophobia. I really believe in this concept called self-leadership, which is the art and science of individual accountability. And if you show up for work, you do your job with integrity, you solve problems, you work well with others, you have permission to do your job efficiently 
and get the heck out of there and live an awesome and amazing life. So it's not like I tell everybody to be a slacker because not everybody has that capacity within them. But if you are someone who can do your job right and do it right the first time, your work will precede you. Your reputation will be so strong that you don't need to play politics. You don't need to participate in presenteeism. And you have permission to be a little bit brave, a little bit bold, and to opt out of a lot of the corporate shenanigans and do your job, exit the work environment for the day, and go invest in your underdeveloped personal life. And so in that way, you know, there's nothing good about COVID but at least the pandemic really reaffirmed what I knew, that the people who kind of came in, did their job right first time, were the people who were working the right way forever. I love what you say there, underdeveloped personal life. That is so spot on. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. Um, you know, a, an interesting compliment to this is uh, an interview that I had with the co-authors of the book Time Off. Uh, and, and so that's so interesting to me because I, they really encourage you to dive into that piece, um, to develop your personal self, um, because you can't, you know, it's hard to grow, you know, all work and no play. Right. Um, so sure, it's, sure. it's interesting. I'm seeing some crossover in some of the conversations that I've been having. And I love that, um, you're, you're pushing back on that, you know, that you're saying you need to focus on that. I think that's a gift. We, we need permission. Thank you. You know, a lot of people feel as if when work is broken, they need to double down on work and spend more time at work and somehow win people over or prove that they're worthy of the job that they have, even though things around them are kind of chaotic. And I don't believe we fix work like that. I believe we fix work by fixing ourselves first. It's really an inside out job. You go, you step away from work and you find your worth in other things besides your job title. You find your worth in your identity. You find your worth in your relationships out in the world. You find your worth in being of service. And you have all of these amazing experiences outside of work. And then you bring them back into either the virtual or in real life work environment. And you not only enrich your own job, but you enrich the jobs of other people. You show them another way. And it's in this act of going out into the world and thinking about things outside of your job, that you're learning, you're growing, you're developing your well-being, you're learning how to take risks, and you're coming back to your job as this awesome and amazing self-leader and then hopefully group leader as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, what happens when we step away is we have time to really let ideas and thoughts and things that aren't working, we, we allow that time for it to sort of sit in us. And I find, and I don't know if you find this too, that stepping away and immersing myself in something that is the polar opposite, whether it's walking the dog, learning uh, a new language, uh, taking on a hobby, it actually opens my mind up to maybe some of the struggles I'm having at work or on projects. And the answers almost come to me magically than when I'm immersed for four hours at my desk trying to figure out why can't I figure this out? Do you find that as well? 
Yeah, I think that's really well said. And you know, what we find is that the best, happiest, most engaged people in this world are learning. They're not learning about their job. They're learning about art. They're learning about science. They're taking a walk through the woods and de facto learning about themselves. But when they're learning, they're growing. And when they're growing, they're thriving. So anytime you can step away from this problem, this conundrum in front of you and go out into the world and experience things in new ways, you can take that energy back to your work environment and look at a problem or a scenario in a different way. So you are absolutely right. You know, I'm a long distance runner and when I'm out there running or even when I'm just taking a walk, my mind is focused on what I'm doing in the moment. It's forced to do that. Otherwise I would trip and fall and injure myself. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity to opportunity I'm really grateful for this opportunity to step away. I think right now between COVID and physical quarantine that we're going through, along with this just idea that we have to be present all the time at work, more and more, it's harder to step away. It's harder to have those other experiences, but only you can make those decisions for yourself. And that is the underlying message of my book. There is no cavalry coming. There is nobody there who's going to fix work for you. If you have an issue in your work environment. It's terrible that there's no HR department. That's a whole other topic. It's terrible that your boss is a mess, but it's really on you to take that next step to fix it. And the book offers ideas and solutions to get you to that next place in your career. I, I had in my mind where I was going to go next with a question, but since you bring that up, let's jump forward a little bit to that. So um, one of your chapters talks about always be learning right? Use your brain for more than work. So it sounds like we have a natural segue here. <laughs> Would you like to share a little bit about that chapter? Um, and, and then there's another uh, chapter that I think a lot of people will, that will resonate with a lot of people. So, so I'm going to go backwards in your, in your book. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Well, you know, you can obviously sense my passion for learning and growing and thriving. That's really important to me. And I think one of the challenges that we have in our modern world is that we're waiting for a human resources department to hand us a training plan or leaders to map out our personal and professional development. And I really believe that all learning is worthwhile. We are living in the golden age of learning. This is the peak time in our lives where we can go out and learn anything through the University of Google or the University of YouTube or LinkedIn Learning, there is nothing out there that we can't find out. Now, certifications can be expensive, degrees can be expensive, but just your own individual curiosity can get you pretty far along the way of just reigniting your passion for whatever it is or just learning something new. You know, I am an animal person and for years I fostered kittens. But over COVID, I started fostering dogs. I don't really know anything about dogs. And so what did I do? I went out to YouTube and watched this guy, Zach George, and studied all of his videos. And what I found is that I was actually learning about human psychology because to train a dog is to train people. I would have never known that had I not taken the initiative. And then instead of boring people about my daily life within quarantine, I now had more stuff to talk about with my colleagues and my peers about dog training and all the things I was training these foster puppies to do. So it's just a small example of the way that learning can really open you up. But there are ways to go beyond these formal learning plans and YouTube and Google. You can get a mentor. You can go back and be your own mentor. Go look at your last performance review. 
find one little thing in there and everybody has that one thing that bugs them about that performance review and on your own, try to fix it within 30 days. Have a look at that feedback, really think about it, go on the internet, go to the library, your librarians miss you and try to find a way to address that without your father figure boss or your mother figure HR department coming in and telling you what to do. What I'm saying is that learning is really the key to creating your own employee experience, your own culture within a company. And if you're learning and you're constantly focused on your own development, some of the stuff that bugs you about work may not bug you as much when you're in your own flow. You know, it's so interesting. Um, so first of all, there's a saying, there's no such thing as bad dogs, only bad owners, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yeah, which is your psychology there. But um you know, I think a lot of people get caught up with, oh, I can't afford to go back to school, you know, oh, I'd love to get my MBA or finish my bachelor's or um, or any of those things. But like you said, like, you don't have to get certified. You know, I learned this year how to do podcasting. And I also went on YouTube University and Googled everything and figured it out. Um, so I think yeah. that and there's no certification, but guess what? The podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, and all over. So I guess I did okay. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I did it right. So yeah. um, I think we get caught up in thinking that it's all very expensive to learn and we we need the yes. validation of certificates and whatever, and you don't need either. So I'm glad that you said that as well. Um, which actually then allows me to go into this other chapter of yours, just a perfect segue, Lori. I don't know how you plan this, but bet on yourself, be imposter syndrome and believe your own hype. So before I let you talk about that, I should tell you that I had a boatload of imposter syndrome when I decided to start um, Mm -hmm. podcasting uh, because I had never done it before. I had zero experience in, in audio. I also had imposter syndrome when I was writing my book because I've never been an author. So I love that you're saying bet on yourself. I wish I had your book a year ago (laughs) that told me this, but how do you do that? How do you beat that syndrome and how do you believe in your own hype? So I really fundamentally believe that when we talk about imposter syndrome, we have created a system of language, a system of communication where it's often gendered, or it's focused on younger people. And imposter syndrome is one of these weird, beautiful things that unites us all. There isn't a human being alive who hasn't felt inadequate, insecure, ashamed, afraid. These are universal feelings. So the more we lean into them, the more we talk about it, the more we normalize it, the further we are to beating it, or at least acknowledging that it's just part of the human condition And maybe we don't need to beat it. We just need to speak honestly about it as if it's a phase that we need to overcome. But more importantly, there are times in our lives when we are truly imposters. For example, I too was once new to podcasting, right? What did I know about audio? What did I know about editing? What did I know about constructing an interview? What did I know about talking to people who intimidated me? You don't get better. You don't get out of that imposter phase until you practice. And everybody is pre-approved and born with the right 
to try new things and practice. But one of the ways we can give ourselves a chance for success is by using a little exercise I teach in the book called a pre-mortem. So I want everybody to envision a thing they're nervous to try and they're really afraid they're going to fail on. Like maybe it's a job interview, maybe it's painting your kitchen, maybe it's having a difficult conversation with a partner. For a minute and a minute only, I want you to envision all the ways it's going to fail and write it down. Let's lean into being an imposter and be funny, be irreverent, be silly. If you're going to go on an interview, how would you fail? Well, maybe you'd be too sweaty. Maybe you don't shake hands very well. Maybe you don't make great eye contact or you can't tell a story. You know how you fail at interviews. Write all of it down. And when the timer goes off after a minute, what you have is a gift. You have a roadmap. You can look at these things and if any of them ring true in any way, you've been given the ability to fix them before you actually try to do the thing you wanna do. And by doing this exercise, by fixing those glitches, you give yourself a competitive advantage of greater than 30%. This is not just Lori Rudiman science. This is Dr. Gary Klein out of Harvard and Stanford. They've done all kinds of research at University of Michigan, but more importantly, NASA does this before they launch a space shuttle. They do a pre-mortem and try to figure out how that space shuttle is going to blow up. IBM does it. Cisco does it. Big engineering firms do it when they're about to build a bridge. Pilots do it before they get in the plane. They do a checklist, not because they just want to do a checklist. They don't want that plane to go down. If you can apply the lessons of a pre-mortem to your imposter syndrome, you can test out whether or not you truly are an imposter and if you are, God forbid, like we all are when we're new, you can fix your stuff and then move forward to a greater chance of success. I love that. You know, um, I will also say that I think in some areas, and I'm not going to say necessarily something that's brand new, but well, maybe it is something brand new. I, I, I just recently was on LinkedIn having a conversation with somebody back and forth about imposter syndrome and how there's this negative connotation, right? Like imposter syndrome. It sounds so negative. It sounds like an illness, right? Syndrome. It's, it sounds um, mm -hmm. unbeatable. It sounds horrible. Um, but sin this is almost a newer term that it's become into the vernacular of, of business. So I would, I would like people to start reframing it and start calling, going back to calling it a learning curve. Because to me, learning is a verb and it's positive. And I feel like we need to, we need to start putting terminology in our heads and, and letting it come out of our mouths so that it, that let's normalize that, right? Like maybe we start, stop calling it imposter syndrome and start calling it a learning curve and it won't feel as bad. <laughs> but then you'd have to rewrite your book. No, 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 I don't think so. I, you know, I think imposter syndrome, whatever you call it, is just a measure of semantics. But I would also like to put it out there that some people, in fact, most people really are imposters when they start out. Like they're faking it. We all fake it. And I think this is just not that big of a deal. And for whatever reason, you know, self help gurus and, psychological, you know, motivational speakers out there have made it into a thing. And I mean, it is a thing, but 
it's just part of life and it's not that big of a deal. And in fact, there's something really liberating in knowing that everybody suffers from imposter syndrome and call it whatever you want. And also that we're all imposters at our early stages, but it's the people with a beginner's mindset that go, you know what, this is hard, but I'm going to continue doing it. You know, hard things are hard for a reason. It filters out the people who can do it from the people who are just dilettantes and playing around with it. So the fact that you persisted through something that was hard and you persisted through your self-doubts means that you've earned the right to deliver a podcast. And that's a really important right to earn. If you were just someone who showed up, you were lazy, you didn't care about your audience, you didn't care about the quality of the conversation, you didn't care about your own individual self-improvement, that would be terrible. You would be a terrible podcaster. So I'm glad that you felt the nerves. That means that it was important and that you worked through them and developed your own skills. So call it a learning curve, call it imposter syndrome. I don't really care, but I think it exists for both healthy and weird reasons. And I just think we can all test out whether or not we're true imposters by using something like the pre-mortem. Yeah, I love the pre-mortem. That's uh, something I will deploy immediately. <laughs> I love that. Sure. So um, also in your book, you talk about how to be a secret job search spy. Mm. So I think there's a lot of people looking for work. So I really want to lean into this chapter with you and sure. um, maybe you can share with us your job search 101. Well, one of the real beauties about this chapter is that I don't pretend to have um, job search super secret facts and amazing things out there that aren't on the internet. What I really talk about is the philosophy behind a search because oftentimes we hit LinkedIn, we optimize our profile, we go on the job boards, we do everything transactionally, and we forget that over half of the positions in corporate America are filled through referrals and referrals only. So if you wanna be a super secret job search spy, the last thing you ought to be doing is updating your public profile because I don't think you want people to know that you're looking all the time, especially now. Many people are sheltering in place. They're nervous. They want to hang on to their jobs for as long as possible because we're in a pandemic. They would like their health insurance. So I think it's all about having the conversations and developing the relationships. And in the book, I talk about how people are hired for three reasons, because someone likes them, someone knows them, and someone trusts them. That's it. If you could get someone to like, know, and trust you, you've got a job, whether you're qualified or not. And so in the book, I talk about how to really establish being liked, known, and trusted if you don't know anybody at an organization by using you know, second and third degree connections or by leveraging the network you do have. And most importantly, by being of service. People who are helpful, and this is anecdotal, but something I believe in my heart, I've seen, it's been written about. People who are helpful are hired at a higher rate than those who are trying to just have a transaction and get hired into that role. So if you're out there, you're networking, you're connected, you're of service, you're volunteering, you're making a difference, your chances of being hired are greater than someone who's just finding the old way of getting in through the ATS. So being of service is the best way that I can recommend finding a job in COVID. And beyond. That's amazing. 
Um, I've always felt that the relationships and the connections are everything. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that from your experience, you're kind of reiterating that, but I like the like, know, and trust piece of it. It makes us, you know, take, take stock of that with each person we sit down to talk or try to sit down and talk to, or make a connection with on LinkedIn to think about, you know, how do I create that, uh, that triangle of like, know, and trust. So I really like that. Um, so for, I want to leave on a note regarding company culture a bit, cause, um, you know, it is some of the conversation that people come, come to this podcast for. So in one of your chapters, you talk about tips to fix work in six months or less. So can you share with us, I don't know, two or three tips before I let you go for the day? Sure. You know, the tips to fix work really have nothing to do with company culture. So I want to just put that aside for just a quick second and talk about company culture because for years, companies have been really good about lying to the workforce about what they offer. They say, you know, we offer a great place where you can show up and bring your whole self to work. You can be authentic. We want you to work at the intersection of purpose and passion. And I think some of those companies, you know, were well-intentioned, but by and large, what we've seen in the age of COVID, especially with all of the women leaving the workforce, is that companies don't care, or they only care in as much as it affects the bottom line. And if women need to leave the workforce to take care of kids unpaid, they're okay with that as long as the organization can continue and can thrive. So while I think company culture is very important, and we can talk about this, I also think that you are the boss of you. You are the CEO of your life. And if you don't understand what's important to you from a values perspective, what you will do and what you won't do, it doesn't matter where you work. You could work at a sweatshop or you could work at the most enlightened organization. You're always going to be at the whim of the leadership team. But if you know who you are and what you stand for and what you stand against, you can almost get an early read on the environment and make decisions, even if they're difficult decisions, make decisions in an informed way. So my argument to you today is that company culture in 2020 and be company culture in 2021 and beyond is less important. What's more important are your own values, your own philosophy, and what you bring to the table and what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do to earn a paycheck. So company culture to me, I don't care. It's dead. But I get hit all day long by chief learning officers, chief people officers, heads of human resources who hate that. They really believe that a company can create an environment to motivate people to operate at that intersection of purpose and passion. And when they hear me say that company culture is irrelevant, they get mad. So I wonder what you think about that. Well, that's really interesting. Um, you know, it's... <sighs> So there's been a lot of iterations of company culture, okay? So when I first started the podcast, the, co the conversation was culture eats strategy for breakfast, and it was all from the C-suite. Um, as I moved forward into COVID and the whole world imploded and um, HQ became the kitchen and um, every the whole workforce became fragmented, um, I started to look at how, how does this work now? And 
it, it's it's not going to work the way it did before, right? So our framework that we knew of doesn't work in the new normal. And maybe it never worked, but the point is whatever com- whatever was viewed as company culture before does not work now. And so I started uh, doing some reading and Seth Godin in his book, This is Marketing, says culture is strategy. Now, if you look at culture as strategy and you say you have to look within yourself and, and what that means as the individual and what you will tolerate and not tolerate from your own value system, which is kind of what you're saying, then culture can be the strategy, but not from the corporate perspective. It's from the you perspective, right? Um, so it's interesting. The And the iteration begins to shift yet again for me um, because I'm watching this and talking to leaders around the country, around the world about company culture. And it's become very evident to me that this conversation is really tough to have right now because I don't think anybody knows what corporate America is going to look like in six months or in 12 months because we went from brick and mortar to big behemoth skyscrapers to fully remote in everybody's kitchen and spare bedroom. Now we're talking about remote, and hybrid and all sorts of other things. I think we need probably a year of case studies, uh, a year of, uh, you know, Mm. all of the different, you know, people really studying what is happening. Um, But what I love is the power that you give to people in your book, Lori, that you are bringing it back to the self, to the you, um, you have the control of you, um, culture as you, what you are looking for at the end of the day for, for work, for your intersection of purpose and promise and planet and whatever else. Um, so I think it's very interesting. I'm seeing a lot of companies do a lot of interesting things, um, you know, I've spoken about Leon Health Sciences before. I think that they're a really interesting company and in what they're doing. I think they're on the cutting edge of something. Um, you know, they have an AI-powered SaaS platform that helps the individual um, assess when they're starting to burn out or when they're ready to, um, and not just starting to burn out, but how to mitigate that, but also when they're ready mm. for more when they're ready actually for um, a controlled amount of stress to get them to that next growth level um, if they have a growth mindset um, and and they're ready to learn new things and, and move to that next level. So I see things coming down the pike that are really special culture tools, if you will. Um, so maybe company culture is just going to shift and have its new iteration, and I'm not 100% sure what that is yet. But that's my answer to your question. That's great. That's great. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> so, Lori Rudiman, this has been really amazing. I am going to put in the show notes how everybody can reach you and links to your book and everything that you're doing so people can continue to follow you um, because I have a feeling there's going to be uh, another edition of this book uh, 
that uh, takes a look at what the world looks like uh, in another year. And, and um, so I, I think there's more to come from you. <laughs> and, I, and I hope that we uh, get to see more. Thank you. I should hope I've not peaked yet. I've got a little life within me left. So <laughs> there's there's more from all of us. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, um, the betting on you, like I, I see, um, I see that as people take control of their career and, and put that in practice, I, I see, I see volume two is what I'm saying. So I, I do thank you. And, um, thanks for coming on culture factor. This was really awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. It was great to connect with you and your audience. And I really look forward to hearing more episodes. It's been really great today. Excellent. And everybody check out punk rock HR while you're at it. Cause you know, we're all podcast lovers here. So, there and I'm go. sure it's wherever you get your podcast fix, right? For sure. It's all over. It's too many places. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.